what sustainability invites us to is not simply the role of the demos, the human, or the citizen, but our role within the larger planet and cosmos, in a sense that we are invited now to think in an expansive manner. And this is the Green Majority Best of... Best of edition. February 2024. For February 2024. Best of edition. Best of edition. Should we say what we're going to talk about in it? Or? Yeah, it makes sense. I think so. Couldn't hurt. This episode well, will have too much. Do we want to say... Because I mean, the I, thing is, I'm, I'm literally, before everything happens... You're saying it? I'm saying what's oh, going to okay. happen, so... Okay. <clears throat> My name is David Franklin Irwin Hostetter. We got Stefan Christian Irwin Hostetter. Stefan Hostetter's hair is tufting off his crown like a He, he looks like baby... He, no, like baby Maggie from <laughs> Little baby Maggie. Little baby Maggie. And we have Lauren Elizabeth Corlator. Cor, a.k.a. Persephone. Lauren Elizabeth Pomegranate Latour diving into the Greek underworld to retrieve her lost husband. Literally any, I would take any husband at this point, lost or otherwise. As long as they're sweet like the granite. You know what? I don't even need that. Oh. I can pass on that. Okay. Any bitter old man will do. This is, of course, the Green Majority Canada's oldest environmental radio show. And I'll tell you what, listeners, I feel like the oldest environmental news radio show and podcast that didn't roll lauren is the oldest known living environmental podcaster i like the vocal fry of a 30 year old but like jokes on you guys i'm like 87 and been podcasting this entire time Stefan Christian Irwin Hostetter, speaking to the gloriously smooth-tongued and velvet-throated Professor Stephen Sharper, specializing in environment and theology, I think. <clears throat> and we are listening to a segment of their interview that aired this month and they are discussing the origins of democracy. And we turn to that now. If we're going to build up sort of this case for a link between sustainability and democracy, can you sort of tell us where democracy came from? When we think of democracy in the West, we think of ancient Athens. And you know, fifth century BCE Athens and the development of the first Western democracy. 
And there, as we know, I mean, I'm certainly no expert on ancient Athenian democracy, but there are a few threads that uh, I hope to highlight here. Of course, it comes from demos, the word for people, and kratos, rule. So this idea that people can rule themselves is something that emerged in ancient Athens for the citizens of Athens. And that was limited to free men, 18 years and older. So women, slaves, children were not part of that demos pool that could participate in direct democracy. And this notion of citizen also emerges from ancient Athens. And you have a responsibility to your city. So the context was citizens in the city having a say and a responsibility and duty to participate in the formation of rules of law. So how the various structures of their life would be led. And one thing that was important here in democracy as it emerged in certainly Athenian democracy was an attempt to not have one interest or one ruler or one controlling power determine the lifeway of the whole city so that there was participation of a variety of people. Again, not the whole populace, but a representative populace given the kind of strictures of the time. So this notion of common good is involved in this ancient form of democracy. But that's one strand of democracy. There's a different source of democracy that we have in North America. And this is one that's often hidden and often bulldozed by perhaps a colonialist ethos, and that is our indigenous traditions of democracy. So in North America, the Haudenosaunee, known as the Iroquois Confederacy, had forms of democracy that were very important and influential in terms of Western democracy, particularly in North America. So one of the traditions in the Haudenosaunee was the selection of leaders through clan mothers and the kind of meetings and assemblies that would occur among the five and then six nations of the Confederacy. After their great peacemaker helped bring harmony to the Haudenosaunee, and here the work of Bill Woodworth, who's an indigenous architect at Waterloo, as well as Orrin Lyons in upstate New York and others show that the founding fathers of the United States were very influenced by these threads of democracy, that this notion of a confederacy of nations had an impact on the formation of a confederation of states in the United States. There's also an indigenous storyteller and artist who writes about this from the perspective of women, and that's Naomi Renville. And she talks about the role of clan mothers. So whereas in ancient Greece, women were not a direct part of the democratic process. In North America, in the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, women had a powerful role in the selection of leaders. The leaders were male generally, but the clan mothers were absolutely essential in identifying and in a sense, giving their blessing to male leaders. And writers have noted how many in the 
American colonies were surprised at this, at the empowerment of women in these democratic structures of the Haudenosaunee and other indigenous traditions. The Muscogee Nation of Oklahoma, for example, also had powerful democratic traditions that were influential in North American democracy. Some even claim that the Supreme Court and the notion of the Supreme Court was deeply influenced by these strands in indigenous democratic traditions of having certain leaders and elders who were quite wise make rules and laws for the community. So it's interesting now, Steph, as in light of our ecological emergency and climate chaos, we turn to indigenous cultures often for wisdom that had been oppressed, silenced, buried, colonized, to help us find a way out of our ecological morass. But we're also realizing that there are democratic wisdom traditions there that have also been overlooked or sidelined or marginalized. And so this is an act of liberation, this historical retrieval. And as you know, I've looked at Latin American liberation theology and liberation traditions from Latin America. And Gustavo Gutierrez, a Peruvian priest and social activist who developed many of these antecedents of liberation theology, talked about the threefold notion of liberation. And one is liberation from socio-political, economic, cultural, racial oppression. The second notion, though, is historical liberation. And that is unearthing the suppressed, beaten, colonized, marginalized stories and persons who helped shape history, the unnamed agents of history. And the third, of course, is liberation from what he would call sin, quote unquote, and he defines that as what, whether, whatever ruptures our relationship between ourselves and our divine or the higher power or in his sense, the creator. But that second notion, this historical liberation, is important when we look at democracy and sustainability, because the indigenous roots of democracy are often overlooked or ignored. And they're very compelling and powerful and continuing traditions that we, I think, are invited to be in fruitful dialogue with and respectful dialogue with. The way that these, our colonial nations here in you know, Canada and the States have talked a lot about themselves, you know, especially if you look at the States uh, in, in early 2000s, about bringing democracy places. In doing that, in, in their whole process that they are considering, oh, we figured out democracy over the last 200 years, so we need to export it now. Yet the colonial practice that they participated in, in many ways, stamped out a local democracy. Like there were democracies across North America before the American Revolution. And the idea that the American Revolution, because it's pushing back against the monarchy, gets to have this sort of raw, raw story that they are, in fact, you know, the, the righteous ones. But the moment you understand that the indigenous populations that they were eventually colonizing and then forcing out of their lands, killing hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people, was the extermination of a local democracy, it really flips that sort of idea on its head that this was a, a democratizing of the land when you understand exactly the, what the other nations were doing that were within, their, within the you know, so-called United States. 
I'm thinking of a book and a conversation by and with Peter Russell. He is a professor emeritus from the University of Toronto and one of the leading constitutional scholars and democratic scholars, scholars of democracy here in Canada. And he tells a story about, I think it was in the 1970s, he gets a call from the chief of the Dene in the Northwest Territories. And they want him to come out to answer a question. They wanted to do this in person. So getting to some of those areas in the 1970s wasn't as easy as it is now. This was quite a journey. And they bring Peter into a room and he's with members of the Dene community. And they say, how did Canada get sovereignty over our lands? And he said, I don't know, but I will talk to the people who should know and get back to you. Well, of course, he checked with all the legal doyens and the deans of sovereignty in the country. And the answer was, it was stolen. They had no legitimate right to sovereignty. So to your point, oh, we're going to bring democracy to the world. Oh, we're going to bring the light of our Western enlightened citizen-based form of government to darkened authoritarian and backward rule and regions. It's often a sham. And this notion of sovereignty that somehow the crown or the government of Canada has sovereignty over indigenous peoples or their lands was really a sham. It was a theft. So their notions of sovereignty were sublimated. Their notions of democracy and consensus rule, their empowerment of women was also steamrolled in this larger narrative. And that's why that historical notion of liberation is so important, not only for the truth and reconciliation process, but also for our liberation from environmental destruction, from oppressive forms of government, from racism, and from the ever-tempting hit of colonization, intellectually and economically and politically. This is not just a policy issue. It's not just an economic issue. It's not just a, you know, a kind of strategic issue. It's a deep cultural reimagining that involves our whole selves, our spiritual, artistic, creative, dynamic, philosophical selves, that this is a moment to reimagine what it means to be human. What sustainability invites us to is not simply the role of the demos, the human or the citizen, but our role within the larger planet and cosmos in a sense that we are invited now to think in an expansive manner.
now we will turn to a clip of us discussing scientific findings, potential scientific findings, who the hell knows, around future warming, near future warming, uh, with aerosols, El Nino. And Lauren will discuss the environmental movement, and we'll talk about... Jesus Christ descending from the sky and releasing sulfur into all the caves of the earth. I mean, um, prison labor. Prison labor and some oil company stuff. Was the request from a listener to discuss this particular podcast, not this one? There was indeed, yes. Um, so we had, we had a listener send in a, a request for us to chat about a, a po- episode of The Great Simplification, which is a podcast I've heard a couple times before. Uh, it's quite, quite an interesting one, if you like long interview podcasts. And this one was with uh, a man named Leon Simmons who's a climate researcher and was the co-author of the paper Global Warming in the Pipeline uh, with renowned climate scientist James Hansen. We probably honestly covered this paper, and we definitely covered some of the worries that are established in this paper before. But I will say, listening to this hour uh, and a half conversation, I learned a lot. Um, So... His mind is blank with the amount of information that he has learned. Okay, so the podcast episode uh, mostly focuses on Simmons's theory and worry uh, about aerosols, most specifically sulfur, and how recent the succe- recent uh, successes in environmental policy to remove uh, sulfur dioxide from shipping may be behind the incredible scary jump in ocean temperatures, loss of sea ice, and potentially even uh, burning of Canadian forests that we saw last year. Basically, the, the fear here is that the reason for those scary graphs that we covered all of last year, which, uh, again, showed us being entirely off regular earthly rhythms of sea ice and sea warming and things like that could be due to the legislation that removed sulfur dioxide from shipping. And what's interesting about this is that despite shipping only accounting for about 10% or so of sulfur dioxide that was released every year, the fact that it's released over the ocean and the fact that there aren't a lot of other things that are creating particulate matter over the ocean means that we actually got way more warming than you'd expect from just a 10% remit, uh, reduction. And and I should preface this all by saying one of the things to know about sulfur dioxide is that it is actually a global coolant. It's a pollutant, but has a cooling effect on the world. And so the fact, sorry, Lauren, you look, do you have a question? Sorry, we reduced tanker traffic pollution or pollution resulting from tanker traffic. And as a result of having less aerosol pollution, we now are feeling increased effects of greenhouse gas pollution. Correct. Correct. Exactly. And yeah, and and that, and we sort of always knew that sulfur was or sulfur dioxide was did have this cooling effect, but what we didn't know was to what extent it was having a cooling effect. And so the big worry here is that 
if 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 Simmons is right, he warns that there could be even that like basically the big jumps we saw last year could be getting worse in the coming years. A because all of the ways that the sulfur is still in the atmosphere and it could like it's only been three years it could keep getting worse but also b we're moving away from a we're moving into an el nino cycle which is when the earth naturally warms and so we are expect so it's possible that as th as this year carries on that like some of the really scary stuff we saw last year might just get like even more and even worse at a speed so much faster than like the general models predicted because there was all this warming already baked in to the amount of CO2 and other things we've done to the earth, but we are hiding basically because of this artificial cooling effects of, uh, of particulate matter and of sulfur dioxide specifically. And, and that this small reduction because it was over the oceans was actually like a lot of that was creating a lot of clouds or a lot of other stuff that was bouncing off way more heat than we thought, basically. And so what this means and why I think that we as the climate movement should should know about it beyond it just being like, ah, scary, which I think is something to at least keep around, is more actually that like, A, in the next few months, we'll sort of know if this is true. Like it's this isn't going to be one of these theories that takes 15 years to bore out. Like, if he's right, we will see things continue to go weird in the next few months. Like by June, we'll have a good sense of whether or not this interpretation of the data is correct or not. And so we should be preparing for how we respond to that if that is in fact the case. Because I'm, B, if things do get weirder much more quickly, then we will see, I think, an unlocking of opportunity but also of potential like very bad re responses right like if things go super sideways this year if because of these reasons you can see how quickly a case for geoengineering could come up or or other things that we don't want and so like we as a climate movement should be prepared to maybe have some conversations about much more drastic reductions of emissions or other ways to deal with this much more quickly than we might have imagined. If in fact, this theory on how this works is true. Stefan. Yeah. This is sorry. not the news I needed on Wednesday, yeah. February the 7th at 8 PM. I've had approximately one pint of Guinness. And as a result, it's making it really difficult for me to process this information. Oh my gosh. Yeah. yeah. Oh my gosh. It's just, it's listeners. It's all so bad all the time. And I don't know what to tell you. Lauren, we're just going to, we're just going to hire mongooses to take care of the snakes. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Get, make, make big, 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 big ice cubes to drop in the ocean. That will fix the problem. It's going to be fine. Don't worry about the sulfur. Don't worry about the carbon. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. And then, like, I don't know. At one point, you referenced, you're like, and, like, this is, like, an El Nino year. And I'm like, I'm sorry. Hasn't it been an El Nino year every year for the past 10 years? Tell me a year when it hasn't been an El Nino year. Point it out. To oh, yeah. It's been, it's been, it's been El Nino-ing for, like, our entire lives, I think. And obviously it isn't. <laughs> I'm sure all of my like physical geography professors in, in university would be like, Lauren, did you not listen during my lecture? Sorry, Dr. Levesque. No, I didn't. Um, like it feels like every year is an El Nino year. 
obviously that's not the case. That's not how I that works. I think it's works. because even when there's El Nino years, it's still warmer than it's supposed to be. So everyone's like, and it's not even El Nino. So they're just always talking about it. It's Right. We're always yeah. talking about it. Yeah, exactly. My oh understanding my is that last year was a La Nina year. La Nina. We're moving towards an El Nino. It's little girl year. Next year's little little boy year. Yeah, we're relying yeah. on like quick Google search results here. Well, and uh, and the guy saying it in the podcast I listened to. So I'm hmm. he yeah. seemed to know what is up. Men on podcasts are always right. Write that down. Him specifically, he wrote a paper with James Hansen. This guy seemed to know his stuff. He he hopes he's wrong. And we can all hope he's wrong. And we'll know in a few months. And this isn't an indictment of the progressive movement, though I do love to rag on us. Uh, it's it, If the last few years of, for instance, within the so-called Canadian context, the wildfires are any indication, we're actually not all that primed as a movement to absorb the energy and the fury and the despair of a populace that is experiencing these, these tragedies and these crises. So even like the prospect of experiencing another summer of like intense terrifying warming and the brutal effects of that as a result of something like this, 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 this loss of, of aerosol matter, um, this combination with the, with, with the El Nino effect. It's like, great. We're not even equipped as a leftist movement to absorb this new energy and absorb this new fury and this potential new population of people who are galvanized around the issue of climate change because they're experiencing the effects firsthand. It's like, great. We're, <laughs> oh my goodness. I don't want to speak too, too much, but it's like we're an impotent movement who already can't bring these people on and make use of them and make them feel like they're powerful and help them plug into avenues of change and, and leverage their power within their community. So it's like we're all just sitting here being like, well, it's February and I know by the time August comes around, it's going to be real bad and I don't know what to tell you. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that to me, yeah, ex like it, it to me, all of that goes to just the the need to figure out how to harness the weird like in the in actually one of the things they reference in the podcast is the super unusual forest fires in canada last year like that's one of the things they're like oh yeah that was a very weird impact as well i think as this happens consistently there will be guaranteed more and more people as you said who are there to be brought onto the movement and the question is can we figure out how and i think that's the challenge for all of us is to figure out how we, we've really struggled as a leftist progressive movement to we, we mobilize well, we get people out to the action, but we don't do a very good job of actually meaningfully organizing those people in the in the aftermath. And part of that is our fault because we're not skilled up as organizers. But part of it is because we um, I don't know, it's just this sociological phenomenon of the fact that people aren't primed to engage in community organizing. People aren't primed to engage in their community full stop, period. We all want to like, sure, I'm down to go to the action, but at the end of the day, I want to go home and, and, and be on my phone and watch TV and like maybe hang out with a friend. We're just not, we're not very good at engaging with our communities in a real tangible way. So, um, and and I feel like that's that's a problem that the left is really feeling. We're okay at mobilizing people. We're okay at getting people out to the march in opposition to inaction on climate, but we're not actually good about absorbing those people and then empowering them to take action at, at a political level, either municipally or provincially or even federally, um, to then sort of galvanize that energy and translate it into real political power um, and change. All right, we're going to move on to news. All 
All right. So the Associated Press is reporting that companies as large as McDonald's, Walmart, Costco, Burger King, Whole Foods, Kellogg's, and Coca-Cola are benefiting from unpaid prison labor. At the Louisiana State Penitentiary specifically, which used to be a slave plantation, in a state where 64% of prisoners are black, inmates are leased out to corporations and are subject to punishments if they refuse to work. Two out of three prisoners in the U.S. are likely to be forced laborers. Washington, D.C., meanwhile, is moving closer to passing a bill that will create more prisoners, with broad language around drug-related loitering and cracking down on retail theft. And the U.S. has also been further criminalizing homelessness while cutting social services. That would prevent homelessness. It's incredible and distressing that this is allowed to happen. And the fact that we are getting these stories as well as the ones we've seen recently in regards to weakening of child labor laws across the U.S. are examples of how sort of the capital-owning class fight back when there's a tight labor market. Like one of the reasons why I think you're seeing all these things is that, you know, the no one wants to work anymore class of people were unhappy about having to pay living wages to their workers. And so they went out to find other options, basically. And the same can be seen here in Canada with the foreign temporary worker program, which was expanded into new industries, all while the government, you know, has refused to hold up to its agreement to give migrants a path to regularization. And so if we're going to live in a just world, we have to live in a world where all workers are protected. And and to me, that's why I think as environmentalists, and to go back to your point um, earlier, Lauren, about galvanizing real power, is that we need to be paying a lot of attention to what Sean Fain and the United Auto Workers are calling for. Um, so for those who don't know, they proposed that as many unions as possible line up their bargaining with the UAWs for 2028, with basically the idea of setting the stage for a potential general strike. And a proposal like that, you know, you could imagine then actually getting uh, the kinds of reforms that are generational reforms that I would say you haven't seen anywhere in the United States since probably the 30s um, and here in Canada probably since healthcare, if I had to choose one. But like... All of these issues are aligned, and we need to find a way to build as much power as possible to have any hope pushing back. And so, like, this kind of opportunity is sort of the one that I think we need to focus on because, or like, the idea that we're allowing prisons to for profit prisons can farm out people to for profit companies for like cents on the dollar or perhaps nothing at all is. I can't swear, but so messed up. Laura. Well, yeah. And like like you said, it's like at the end of the day, um, the labor movement struggles to have a leg to stand on as long as um, the capital class has this population of like specifically for if we're referring to the states, I don't I don't know what the percentage in, in Canada in so-called Canada is, unfortunately, but like as long as they have this 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 class of indentured laborers numbering in the hundreds of thousands, hundreds of mil- or like millions, potentially not hundreds of millions, obviously, but like in the hundreds of thousands to fall back on, it's going to be extremely difficult for the labor movement to be able to um, 
leverage any kind of meaningful amount of pressure unless like you said Stefan they they go down this sort of like path that that Sean Fain um not 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 Sean Fain um has sort of outlined as a possibility around a, a generalized strike and i mean that would be so exciting especially not only for a country like the states but like a country like Canada where like actually if you look province by province a significant amount of the labor force is unionized and does have that protection. And obviously like wildcat strikes and generalized strikes are, are, are difficult to coordinate and risky, but there is safety in numbers in that. And like, that's, that's the whole, that's the premise of a labor movement. You know what I mean? If we do this together, if we have these ties of solidarity and we're willing to stand as a united front, we actually, we wield a lot of pressure against the capitalist and against the ruling class. Um, but it takes, um, not only does it take a lot of courage and a lot of vision on on the part of labor leaders, it also takes a lot of, um, sorry to reuse these words, but like trust and solidarity and like meaningful connection and strong relationships built within these labor unions, which I feel, again, I'm, I'm, I'm outside of the labor movement. I'm maybe not speaking from an informed place, but feels like hasn't really been fostered in recent years. So in Canada, like I said, we're, we're lucky we have a slightly stronger labor movement than, than they do in the States, but um, there's still a long way to go when it comes to nurturing that kind of trust and that kind of faith and that kind of involvement and commitment and being like down for the cause um, on behalf of your fellow workers um, than has maybe existed at, at, at previous points. Um, D. Smog is reporting that the American Petroleum Institute funded climate research as early as 1954, quickly understanding that their product was a threat to our civilization. D. Smog writes, quote, It reveals a picture of a much more nuanced, closely connected world of science and the frontiers of scientific discovery than the oil industry has admitted to. In addition, despite being warned about the potential climate impacts of CO2 in 1954, 35 years later, numerous members and sponsors participated in a multi-million dollar campaign attacking climate policies aimed at tackling global warming and promoting denial of the science they themselves had helped to fund. So that's 1954 now. Soon we're, soon we're going to learn they, they knew about climate change before they first invented uh, coal engines. All right, so the, the narwhal has obtained documents indicating that the Ford government in Ontario is planning to allow for land to be expropriated for development projects before they pass environmental review. Emma McIntosh and Fatima Syed write, quote, the move to explicitly allow appropriation of land before obtaining certain approvals is aimed at preventing potential court challenges from bogging down construction of flagship provincial projects like Highway 413, the Bradford Bypass, and new transit lines. And to enable what the government says the government is already doing, what the document says the government is already doing, despite uncertainty about whether it's legal. The government's internal estimates suggest that the move could shave six to 18 months off the timeline for a major infrastructure project. And finally, Enbridge is planning to lay off 6% of its workforce to reduce operating costs. I, I wish us all the hope that we all find someone who loves us as much as Doug Ford loves highways. You know, and maybe we don't have to dive down to find our pomegranates to do that. But man, like the number of things Doug Ford will do to get highways built and to ultimately serve the sort of developers who are along those routes is bonkers to me.
here's the thing. I'm less concerned with finding somebody who like loves highways as much as, as much as Doug Ford loves highways and more somebody who is interested in funding highways the way Doug Ford is. Um, that's, that's more so in the year of our Lord, 2024, it's the, it's the funding mm. that I personally am interested in. Right. I mean, as, as, that's as the only way to live. Right. Yeah. It's only way, it's only way to live, uh, not in a small one bedroom <laughs> apartment. And yes. honestly, yes. I have a partner and we still live in a small one bedroom apartment. So maybe that won't save us either. But um, anyways, there is a really deep dive that the Narwhal did about this, and I, I'm sure it'll keep coming out. So I do recommend checking that art out. And yeah. Thank you for sticking with us. This Green Majority, February 2024. We're now going to listen to a clip where Stefan is speaking with the filmmakers Lena Manamekle and Matthew Edissary, creating a film about an Afro-Indigenous tribe in the Amazon, protecting the Amazon. And here they are discussing the notion and practice of participatory filmmaking. And we turn to that now. And so you have mentioned participatory filmmaking a few times, and I wonder if you can explain what, what that looks like. Back in India, I live with communities and hear their stories, do interviews, write the script with them. The latest film of mine is called Madati, Madati and Anfari Tale. It's about the unseeable, like, you know, the Dalits among Dalits, the communities who are considered impure to be seen, you know. Yeah, it's, past, uh, it's, it's part of the system of slavery, the caste slavery in India. And this is the first ever time, like, a film is made on them because they are invisibilized. And it was like a very empowering journey for me to live with them, to learn their stories and struggles and transport the story into the, the medium of film. So that now their story is documented because even their existence remain undocumented. They are not even in the census in India. Like nobody knows how many people are there because they are considered unseeable. So they're totally erased from the eye of the governance. So that's how I made that story, like lived with them, wrote with them, and they were participating in the production. And they were also... Through it, it's it's like a movement, the people movement, and we were bringing the artist community and the community whose stories to be told together in one space, and there is this very intense conversations going on, and we meet at a point, and then we get the story told. So in Sarakura, the same thing. The I followed the same process. We had activists like Shaji and. Uh, activist and academic like um, Lucineji. So they are already working with the communities. They are running water schools at the uh, Kilambolas, um, the Kilambos uh, with the communities. So they took us there and that's how we got access to the communities and repeatedly listening to their stories, visiting them and hearing them inspired me so much that like I wanted this story to be told along with them. 
So I think hours of interviews with the, uh, I mean, there were like 11 kilombos uh, in the Fed, in, in the Santaram. That's a place in Amazon where we were working. And we almost visited like six, seven kilombos, met the leaders, met the community, spoke to people. And they were also excited about this whole making of Kilambola cinema because, see, in Brazil, Brazil is huge. In Brazil, like, uh, uh, Brazil has the largest black population outside Africa. And there are more than 50% of population in Brazil. And out of that, more than 100 million of blacks, 1.3 million were Kilambolas. And Kilambolas were the fugitives of the colonial slave trade. And they are, they are always seen as rebels. So their existence is always challenged by the systemic raci- racial discrimination. And the colonization, though, the, in, in, like in 1888, the slavery was abolished. But still, it took 100 years for them. Like in, only in 1988, they got this legit identity of indigenous. They, they got the indigenous identity. So their land, their territory is always challenged. So, I mean, their, the, how their entire identity is rooted in resistance and how they continue to resist, like they resisted colonial slavery, they resisted racial discrimination, they are resisting many powers, and now they are resisting, I would say, like Brazilian police, the state discrimination, and the extractive capitalist industries. And they're in the front line fighting climate catastrophes. Like this year, they hit the historical drought. The record was like really low, the levels of river. So there were wildfires. The landscape is getting reshaped because of this harsh climate changes. So the territories which they fought is now like it's falling because of this climate catastrophes. So their resilience is something I think I, I mean, as an artist, I felt that's a hope for the future. That's where I have all the learnings. So this film is, is, it will be, you know, very small attempt of bringing that resilience, giving that resilience a shape of a message so that like it gets across to all the communities across the world to learn from them. Yeah. And just getting back onto the question of participatory cinema, we, while we envisioned this, we also wanted to make sure that this is a platform where there would be collaboration between the global north and global south. That is another way of participatory cinema, like we said, you know, because there are a lot of the organizations and very concerned citizens in global north, like with my experience here in Canada, in the climate space, I do realize there are a lot of people who are very concerned. There are a lot of organizations, a lot of movements happening here. How do we connect this with the people who are experiencing climate change, right? How do we experience it with the communities who are also doing similar movements in Global South? So these are the things that we thought would be able to connect through this medium of cinema. And we wanted to go to Global South and, you know, the countries where this is actually happening, especially with the indigenous communities, work with them in terms of our initial idea is to create workshops for the community. So we would go there, we would have eminent filmmakers, technicians come there. We would have filmmaking workshops or artistic workshops where we would be empowering the communities in terms of these newer mediums where they can provide a platform for themselves. 
and then also be part of this film that we are creating, right? So we want them to be part of co-creators of this cinema as well. So that is one way of participatory. Another one is, again, as audiences, you know, we have started a GoFundMe page where we are getting funds from people all around the world, you know, like even from India, we have people who are donating in dollars. You know, that is a huge thing for us. And it's something that we are in awe of and also like have huge respect for. So in terms of how people are contributing to this project, and that is also participatory a way of filmmaking, right? We are actually getting money from people who are fundraising for us through GoFundMe. And lastly, but not at all the least, this whole climate crisis, it's actually causing a lot of anxiety for people around the world. And I believe, we believe for this particular project, when we are actually putting it across, you know, it is actually a way for people to connect through this medium of cinema where, you know, it is addressing people who are living on this front lines and people who are in places, other places like Global North or, you know, like in other parts of the world where people are experiencing similar climate catastrophes and climate issues, how they can connect emotionally through the medium of cinema. That also becomes participatory. So it is in different aspects we are looking at this as a participatory model. I think also bringing academics, artists and activists and the community in one space and also connecting the audience participate in this whole process through this crowdfunding initiative, we are already creating a movement, right? So there is a very intense inter intercultural dialogue that is going on. And this conversation is what I believe in as a filmmaker, as someone who also believes in nonviolent action. For me, nonviolent action is making films, writing poems, right? So it is bringing all these stakeholders in one space and talk to each other and learn from each other and inspire each other. So here we are, you know, it's an intersectional movement for climate justice, for racial justice, and also like, you know, culture revival and black consciousness. So this is where we are all meeting. And this is such a beautiful point to get connected and take this forward. Finally, this Green Majority February, we are continuing to recap this glorious month. And Stefan is here speaking with Mitchell Beer, founder of the Energy Mix. And here he is simply recounting what he thinks are the most important energy stories of this great month. It is a leap year, February 29th, 2024, will be Tuesday, Tuesday, February 29th, sorry, that's a Thursday, Thursday, February 29th, it is a leap year, focus. Mitchell, what do you want people to know about this month? Well, thanks, Stefan. As usual, there's way more news than we can get into 10 minutes, but there are 
horror stories, among others, that I think maybe give the combination of good news and challenging news that we're, you know, all of us facing every day. And the first is the report that was issued last week that showed fossil fuel emissions from particularly from electricity, but fossil fuel emissions in the European Union fall into a 60 year low. That's 60, not 16. So emissions last year in the in the European Union were at the same level they were in the early 1960s. More than half of those improvements, 58%, came from the electricity sector. So that really goes back to what we were talking about in the previous segment. You know, that these these really significant changes are possible um, in the power sector if we get serious about it. And in this case, I think to a large degree, if we're motivated, the European Union was facing a crisis that was not about climate change, but was about national security when Vladimir Putin invaded Ukraine and then began uh, essentially trying to hold gas supplies to the rest of Europe hostage. And they all, European countries, mostly responded uh, by saying, we're never going to be this dependent on anybody's gas anywhere ever again. When you start replacing gas with renewable energy, you make your system much more secure against that kind of bullying and threat, and you make your system much lower carbon. So in 2023, the the power sector reduced its emissions 25%, and that accounted for, as I say, more than half of the of the of the, of the decline over the year. But the real headline news is, first of all, that they are that much down that at this point their emissions are at early 1960s levels, and yet. You'll hear it here every time. They need even faster reductions. We all do. So they're doing great. Most recently, the EU has announced a target of a 90% emissions reduction by 2040. There is some analysis that I've just sort of skimmed, so I haven't dug into this yet, but I gather that the 90% by 2040 depends way too heavily on carbon dioxide removal um, technologies that are, are not proven and may do damage in their own right. But the overall takeaway is we all still need to move faster, but the EU is moving and taking this pretty seriously. So that would be the first. Awesome. Uh, I mean, for the sake of time, what's number two? Number two, we have Ontario, and this again is back to the grid. In the space of just about six months, more than 100,000 households have signed up for what is now Canada's largest virtual power plant. We've talked on the show about how a decarbonized grid is also a more decentralized grid, that we're moving out of this past historical grid structure where there were a few very large power plants of different types, whether they were fossil fuel, whether they were nuclear, whether they were hydro, sending power down down a long transmission line and then from there through a distribution system and all the rest of us were at the other end of the system. It's a much more complicated system with much more opportunity to share energy back and forth and to share energy savings back and forth. So what's happening here is that, as I say, in just six months, Ontario's identified more than 100,000 households that have smart thermostats and are willing to, and being paid, to sign up for a program where when summer electricity demand hits a peak, and so this is when they'd be powering up those expensive and heavily polluting gas-fired power plants, when electricity hits a peak, they give the province the right to automatically turn up their thermostat by two degrees Celsius. I think it's for a maximum of an hour or two. 
So just two degrees, it's just in the in, in circumstances of greatest need. It's it's something people I gather can usually in these systems, people can opt out anytime. For signing up, you get a $75 prepaid credit card and then $20 per, per year for uh, for staying in. And just by doing that, by publicizing it properly, by getting the word out, by signing people up, more than 100,000 households. And when the province turned this system on, and they had to activate it six times during the summer of 2023, they saved as much as 54 megawatts of electricity. So that's 54 million watts. It's, it, it's not everything we need. But it's a lot. And the capacity of the system now with the number of households involved is up to about 90 megawatts. So it just keeps on getting better. What's exciting about this is that basically it's an example of what we could do and just a small example of what we could do if we were really trying. Ontario is a jurisdiction that for the last, I guess, five, five and a half, six years has had an ideological objection at the political level to doing anything that favors renewable energy or energy efficiency. And yet, over the last maybe 12 to 18 months, they've been turning around on that ideology to some extent because they're learning they need to, because they're learning that the 750-plus renewable energy contracts that they canceled when they took power in 2018 are now coming back in the form of an electricity shortage that wouldn't have been as deep or might not have been there at all if they hadn't done that. So they are starting to procure renewables. They're starting to put in this kind of program is called demand response or a virtual power plant. They're starting to introduce these, introduce and scale up these kinds of programs. And both things are true. It, it's really good news and good on them for doing it. And it would be polite to leave it there, but I think it also makes sense, particularly for anybody who has a vote at any level in Ontario to also say, can you imagine how much better this would be if they were actually trying it, if they really meant it? So as usual, glass half full, glass half empty, but the glass half full is pretty powerful on this one. Well, that's great. We are running even more so out of time, but you still have two more stories. Are you going to do both or are you going to choose one? I'll start with one. You let me know All if right. I have more time after. There is a lawsuit. Oh, my God, two lawsuits to talk about. Okay, we'll combine those two and that'll probably take right. us to the hour. Uh, yep. Michael, Michael Mann, iconic climate scientist in the United States, he came up with what is known as the hockey stick graph. There isn't time for me to explain it, but it basically shows visually what's been happening with global temperatures over the uh, over the last thousand thousand or so years. When he first introduced this graph, he was viciously, and it turns out now, well, he was viciously attacked by climate deniers and by alt right bloggers you know, basically saying that he was a scientific fraud and saying much worse. 12 years ago, he launched a defamation suit against them. And last night, it was announced that he had won a million dollar judgment against these clowns. They will be appealing, or at least they think we're appealing. Most of us don't find them very appealing, but um, bum. But he won the judgment. A jury of his peers said, and then you people did this with malice and you're, you're going to pay. The second lawsuit, let's hope it goes as well, is that earlier this year, the Canadian Nuclear Safety Commission, so we're back in Canada now, approved a nuclear dump site about a kilometer from the Ottawa River, so just upriver from us, frankly, where a private company is proposing to store a million tons of radioactive and other toxic waste. Community groups, indigenous communities, 
climate and energy and anti-nuclear groups have all been up in arms about this on the evidence that the safety measures are not right, that the permit is for 550 years with when many of these substances will remain radioactive and dangerous for thousands of years. So the three citizens groups announced um, on February the 8th that they're going to the to, to federal court to try to overturn regulatory approval of what one expert has called a glorified landfill for these radioactive wastes. I don't know what prospect they have of winning that lawsuit, but it's an issue that is really important to look at, worth reading in on. And the name of the site is the Near Service Disposal Facility at Chalk River, Ontario. There's so much more to say about this one, but the top line, the breaking news is see you in court. Amazing. <clears throat> Yikes. That was Stefan not clearing his throat before saying his obligatory amazing. After every single thing his guests will say. And thank you for joining the Green Majority on our very first inaugural episode. Inaugural. Inaugural. Inaugural episode. Inaugural episode of our Best of series. These will be airing once a month. This is the first February 2024. Get it. <laughs> It's not easy being a It's not easy.